Alrighty, welcome back. So this episode is going to be a variety of topics all surrounding learning, but we're going to dive into some social, biological, and cognitive aspects of learning. And not, I don't want to say the word complicate things, but we're really just building on the complexities that really come into play when we're talking about humans and learning. Remember, psychology isn't just about the focus of specific animals, we're really looking at human thoughts and behavior here. So this is kind of the psych part of learning. Now, before I get into that, we didn't have enough time for some different types of quick and easy learning or conditioning last week. So I'm gonna kind of run through this. This was a warm up. Um, on the first day that I saw you this week. So the first type is aversive conditioning. This is talking about um, using punishments to shape particular learning. And when we think of punishment here, I want you to think of an unpleasant type of punishment. The unfortunate thing here is with particular punishments or unpleasant punishments that shape learning, it's not necessarily completely effective in the long term. Um, the acquisition period, remember that acquisition period is that time period that you are associating that reinforcement or punisher with a particular way of behaving. That's usually short, but unfortunately so is the extinction period. Now, there are some drawbacks into why, you know, why aren't they super effective or some drawbacks? What goes on is generally with aversive conditioning, that behavior is suppressed and not forgotten. In other words, you, the subject, learn to not do that particular behavior, but not necessarily the why of not to do it, which may lead it to happening again in the future. It teaches discrimination, um, which means that you're, you learn to not swear um, around your parents, but it doesn't mean that you don't swear around other people. You're able to discriminate the situation, the different situations, sorry. Um, it also teaches fear, which means that you're learning to not do something, but also potentially fear the person or place in which the punishment was delivered. Um, and that would be more in line with generalization. And then lastly, it may actually increase aggressive behavior. Why? Because it models the particular unpleasant punisher. It serves as a model to aggressive behavior. And we're going to talk about what models really are, but it's a type of observational learning. The second type of learning that I'll run through, and it's really the last two, they um, sometimes, unfortunately, students mix them up and College Board loves to bring these up, which I know they're just little bits of info here, but it's important to know the difference between escape learning and avoidance learning. With escape learning, what's going on is you are doing something or making a particular response in order to end or escape unpleasant learning. Pretty much a good solid example here is saying you don't know when called upon in class. The hope is that that teacher moves on to the next person. If the teacher moves on, you're kind of conditioned there um, to repeat that behavior. Then that last type is avoidance learning. 
what this is, is instead of just avoiding that situation or escaping that learning, you are avoiding it altogether. So you're doing something or making a response in order to avoid that unpleasant situation. And a good example here is you didn't, <coughs> you didn't study, so you pretend to be sick. Um, again, when you think of escape learning, think of getting out of a situation you're currently in. Avoidance learning would be avoiding that situation altogether. Um, so let's say you're in the middle of washing the dishes, you make some type of excuse to leave that situation. Um, if you want to avoid washing the dishes altogether, you'll say, oh, I have a lot of homework to do um, to get out of the actual situation of washing the dishes completely. Now, I'm going to get into in this next segment um, a little bit about some biological factors. Um, and when we think about these and cognitive factors and social factors, but I'm really paying attention to biological factors here. But overall with conditioning, when we think back to those early behaviorists, Thorndike, Skinner, Watson, Pavlov, they believed that all behavior is simply a response to a stimulus. But now we've come to realize in Psych 2020, there are different factors that actually affect conditioning. Conditioning doesn't automatically happen. In other words, it isn't mindless. There are a number of factors that work together that are incredibly important. And it's a big reason as to why we humans react differently to particular stimuli. stimuli. We don't all act the same. We aren't robots. Um, when we think about what variables actually influence, and then we'll break down those variables or factors, but all in all, they're influencing that length of the acquisition period, that period of learning, the length of the extinction period, um, basically, you know, when does the subject not do the behavior or unlearn that behavior, and then lastly, being able to discriminate versus generalize particular stimuli. And these variables apply to both operant and classical conditioning. So breaking down biological factors, you know, how are they affecting conditioning? We're going to go into some detail here. It's important to note, though, that some of these factors do, in fact, um, overlap with cognitive factors. Um, the big focus with biological factors that College Board brings up over and over and over again is biological disposition, which we'll get to. The first factor, though, is the conditioned stimulus saliency, or the CS saliency. When we think of something that is salient, it is important or significant to a particular situation. So in other words, when we think of CS saliency, I want you to think of the more related that neutral stimulus is to the actual unconditioned stimulus and um, the more effective. Um, that is both a biological and cognitive factor, and the person associated with CS saliency and kind of figure, figuring this out is John Garcia. So when we think about <coughs> kind of taking a step back here, um, Pavlov, uh, with Pavlov's dogs, believed that any neutral stimulus could be made into that conditioned stimulus that would cause a particular conditioned response. However, what John Garcia found um, is some, um, kind of something else. It really depended on the saliency 
of that conditioned stimulus. And what John Garcia studied was the effects of radiation on living organisms. And during his experiments, he noticed that the rats would avoid food and water shortly after being radiated. Um, and what is going on here is with this taste diversion and what we'll call it the Garcia effect, is that what Garcia will do is pair that radiation with three different things, flavored water, bright lights, and particular sounds. Um, what happened in the end and what Garcia noticed is that the rats actually avoided the, the flavored water but didn't show an aversion to lights or sounds. Um, in other words, when you think about, okay, biologically, so what, why, how? Well, the rats associated the stimuli in ways that foster, survi foster survival. If you consume something that has poison in it, you're going to die. But it wasn't necessarily the case with bright lights and sounds. They've been, they kind of have evolved to, set, to learn and be able to think through this. Again, it's biological and cognitive here. Um, oh, I'm not, I'm going to just avoid something that I actually consume, not necessarily experience around me. Um, so what's going on here is that the animals are acquiring some negative reaction to smell or taste that the animal is exposed to before getting sick, not sight or sound. It does contradict Pavlov's initial idea that any stimulus could be a conditioned stimulus. Initially, Garcia's studies are in fact dismissed until more and more studies existed to pretty much prove the point of, you know what, you can't be conditioned through any experience or, or any uh, stimulus. It really depends. And we, humans, animals, and others, will acquire that negative reaction to smelling things or tasting things that an animal is exposed to before getting sick. So that is that the case for me, and I've talked about this experience often, with shrimp. And unfortunately, I've generalized that one experience of shrimp and having the stomach flu and getting sick after with kind of all seafood, which I know is kind of sad. Um, another type of conditioned stimulus saliency example that College Board has brought up in the past is people have tried to get coyotes to not eat sheep uh, because that's what they did. So what happened, <coughs> the owners or the, whatever, the farmers, put something that makes the coyotes sick in that sheep meat. Um, but they'll also play loud noises and use bright light each time the coyotes came near. What the sheep meat was laced with was a chemical that made coyotes sick, um, that made coyotes sick, and that was more effective than the loud noise or the light. Why? Think of the saliency of the stimulus there. They're consuming something. And so kind of breaking it down, if you're curious about the different parts, how it was supposed to work was that unconditioned stimulus was supposed to be that bright light and loud noise. It what led to that automatic unconditioned response, which was fear. The neutral stimulus is the sheep that then became the conditioned stimulus and then that conditioned response is fear. So instead of associating the sheep 
with the bright lights or loud noises and leaving the sheep alone, like the coyotes actually just came back when they stopped the lights and noises. So the lights and noises itself didn't necessarily work too well as that unconditioned stimulus. However, when they laced the sheet meat with the, the chemical that made the coyotes get sick, they didn't go and get the sheep anymore because of that one instance. Now the next one is factor, it's called biological predisposition. And this is something that College Board brings up often. Um, and when you think about it, it really does make sense. It's just a fancy word attached to it. And it's some animals are easier to train to do certain tasks than others. For example, is it easier to teach a dog to swim over a cat? Most likely it's easier than, or it's easier to teach a dog. Is it easier to teach a cat to climb a tree or a dog? Most likely you'd say cat. And then to pose a really wild question here is, could you actually ever teach a snail to fetch the morning paper? I really don't think you could. I'm sure someone is like, yes, I am determined to figure this out. However, I don't think you could. Um, and when you think back to the cat and the water thing, technically you could teach a cat to swim, but the acquisition period is longer and that extinction is shorter. Why? We have this fancy word called biological drift that could also be referred to as instinctive drift. And what this pretty much means here is that animal reverts back to their biological predisposed behavior or to put a fancy AP psych term there, that conditioned behavior becomes extinct. Extinction happens. Um, there are examples of this, which is super interesting, of pigs that push um, coins into like a piggy bank type thing, not exactly a piggy bank, but it's supposed to be a piggy bank, with their snout um, and not put them in the bank as they'd been trained, um, even though it meant that they did not get the reward, which is interesting. Um, and when we think about biological predisposition, Animals can learn and retain behaviors that draw on their bio biological predispositions. Um, if you think about it, cats, you can teach that cat to actually catch something midair easier than you could teach the cat how to swim. Why? Because in the past, their ancestors were able to catch things. They're not necessarily meant to swim. Um, they enjoy catching things. They don't naturally enjoy the water. Um, if you think about what Skinner did with pigeons, um, it was easier for Skinner to teach that pigeon to actually learn to peck to obtain a particular food as, as opposed to avoiding a shock. Um, why? They're biologically predisposed to peck. Now that is pretty much those biological factors. We're gonna get into some cognitive factors here and the big thing that I want you to think about with cognitive factors is thinking, the mind. Um, and what's going on is that subject thinks about the relationship between particular stimuli and this can happen consciously or unconsciously. Um, it doesn't just, learning doesn't just automatically happen without cognition. There is thinking involved, especially with humans. <coughs> um, now, one guy associated uh, with cognitive learning is Robert Rascorla. 
this is kind of the only point that we're like time that we're going to talk about him, unfortunately. Uh, but he is going to use particular experiments with shocks and a tone um, that precedes a shock. So basically a shock is preceded by a tone and then a light. Um, and what happens to the subject is that they actually fear the tone and not the light, um, most likely because it happened first. Um, but you could also argue the saliency of the tone itself um, with Robert Rescorla. Some other things with cognitive factors is the stimulus strength. Um, a stronger stimulus is better than a weak stimulus. So in other words, that subject is more responsive with particular stimuli um, if it, it's a tone that is louder, a light that is brighter, a food that is more desired. Dogs would definitely more likely prefer steak over a little dog treat. Um, so when you think about cognitively, what does that subject deem more or basically stronger? Um, was it more desired? Is it brighter? Is it louder? Is it more intense? If it is, um, that behavior of the subject is more responsive. Um, and when you think then about the response strength regarding cognitive factors, a stronger response is better than weak when we think about the likelihood of this behavior happening in the future. So we talked about a situation that um, his name was Brian, but uh, you probably didn't remember his name. It was just a hypothetical example where he got sick from spoiled mayonnaise in a tuna salad. Um, if he got mildly sick compared to extremely sick, maybe he'd be able to enjoy tuna salad in the future. I don't know. However, if he became extremely sick over mildly sick, the likelihood of Brian eating tuna salad in the future goes down. Why? Because of that strength in the response, the getting sick. So the condition stimulus saliency, like I said earlier, is also part of a cognitive factor regarding learning. Um, <coughs> again, the more related that neutral stimulus is to the unconditioned stimulus, the more effective. Um, let's say Pavlov used a dog bowl, like tapping on a dog bowl, instead of ringing a bell. The dog bowl, of course, is very, very related to the unconditioned stimulus. Why? How? The food goes in there. So the learning happens a little faster, and it can be stronger. Um, some other examples of conditioned stimulus saliency would be trying uh, to stop biting your nails. So a stimulus that you add is a bad tasting chemical on your nails. There is special nail polish that you could get. Um, but you could also snap a rubber band on your wrist each time you desire or want to bite your nails. That bad tasting chemical is more effective. Why? Well, if you're chewing the nails and they have a bad taste, you're going to remember it way more. There's a closer associ association there than chewing nails in pain. Why? The taste happens in your mouth and so does the chewing, which I know is kind of gross to envision, but here we are. Another type of a cognitive factor that plays into learning is predictability. And <coughs> 
it's pretty much the more predictable that pairing is of the neutral stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus, the more likely that conditioned response is to, is to develop. So if you think about the schedules of reinforcement here, this would be like a fixed ratio schedule. Um, it would be, you know, every single time, or not even the uh, reinforcement schedule, it would just be continuous reinforcement. That's my bad there. Um, every single time that someone did, you know, that behavior, they would get reinforced. But then if you think back to classical conditioning, it would be every single time, you know, that neutral stimulus will always be paired with the unconditioned stimulus, then that conditioned response is going to develop um, faster. Another cognitive factor is timing. Um, another word that College Board wants us to know here is a contingency. Um, basically, this is all about, well, when is that neutral stimulus and the uncondition unconditioned uh, stimulus presented in relation to each other? So is it before or is that neutral stimulus prevented or presented, sorry, before? that unconditioned stimulus? Is it after? Is it at the same time? Is it really far apart? Is it super close uh, together? This all affects the actual length of the acquisition period, the learning. It also affects the extinction period. When will that behavior or response end? Will it end? It also will <coughs> affect the strength of that conditioned stimulus, but also the strength of the conditioned response. Um, the best thing to do is to, the timing should be closer together and the unconditioned stimulus should pr be presented slightly before the neutral stimulus. The next factor is reasoning. So reasoning encompasses a broad range of things, um, but I'm going to basically give a scenario that we'll talk about in class too, actually. Uh, so one, you are eating at a restaurant and you get sick from eating at a seafood restaurant and you get sick from eating the mussels. You had been to that restaurant several times. You have eaten the mussels in the past um, and, never, and you've never gotten sick before. So what do you actually associate with getting sick? Is it the mussels? Is it the restaurant? Is it the person you were with? Or is it even the color of the tablecloth or the things in the menu or... Um, the waiter, the server, who knows. But what we are able to do is actually reason out what made you sick. The muscles, more likely than the bread you ate, the water you drank, the person you're with, whoever your server was, and you're able to kind of reason out and basically conclude that, you know what, not everything associated with that evening will make you sick you may actually be able to go back to that restaurant, but you wouldn't eat the, mus the muscles. So in other words, you're reasoning out that situation. A lot of times this happens unconsciously, like you're not consciously thinking, okay, what actually made me sick? You know, going back and, and forth with kind of weighing out the options. It's pretty automatic here, um, but we do call it reasoning. A last example, <coughs> example would be a therapist treating an alcoholic. Um, and what's going on here is a therapist can put bad tasting flavoring into vodka. Um, each time the person drinks it, he or she, whoever, will feel sick. 
Um, he is supposed to associate the alcoholic beverages with bad taste and hopefully stop drinking. Two issues with this scenario though. One is discrimination in that if only the vodka has the bad tasting flavoring, then the subject unfortunately could soon realize that only vodka will taste bad, not other types of alcohol. The second issue with this situation is actually reasoning. Um, and what's going on here is soon the patient could realize that only alcoholic beverages that his therapist gives him have bad tasting flavoring. So that patient unfortunately reasons out, oh, I'll be fine drinking at a bar um, and it'll taste fine. This is not super effective if you're trying to use this therapy on people. Um, I'm going to take a pause right here and then dive into some other cognitive factors and then we'll get into the last bit of learning to wrap it up. All right, so in this second segment, um, I'm going to wrap up different cognitive factors on learning and then I'll dive into observational learning. So one another, well, there are many different people that we are learning about this um, unit, but his name's Edward Tolman. Um, and he's gonna come up with a few things, we'll call them the cognitive map as well as latent learning. Um, what Edward Tolman does is studies traditional trial and error problem solving. Remember we talked about trial and error with Thorndike, um, who came up with the law of effect. That was like one of our very first um, days that we talked about learning. But what Tolman will do in his, and kind of come to realize in his trial and error learning, is that some of his research subjects, the rats, actually knew more than their behavior initially indicated. So in one of his experiments, he's going to observe this in more detail. And what he'll do, he'll study the behavior of three different groups of hungry rats that are learning to solve a problem, which is navigating a maze. So the group A of rats will never receive any type of food reward. Uh, so there's not necessarily any incentive for that rat to learn to actually navigate the maze effectively. Group B will always receive that food reward at the end of the maze. The payoff for learning the maze is real and immediate. It happens now. Now, the last group, group C, didn't experience a food reward for the first 10 days, but then on the 11th day, they got the food at the end of the maze. Now, the significant group here is group C. But to break down the results, and it's best if you actually take a look in your notes and see the graph, um, but breaking down kind of the so what, why do we care? Group B quickly learned to navigate that maze. Group A wandered aimlessly, makes sense, there was absolutely no incentive. And then group C, they did the same thing as group A. They wandered aimlessly for the 10 days that they did not receive the food, but then you can see on the, the graph that they quickly learned to navigate that maze on day 11. Um, in other words, they caught, up to, they caught up in learning to the rats <coughs> in group B. So he 
realized that the rats that experienced the maze, even without any type of food reinforcement whatsoever, did learn something. And this is called latent learning. Um, what it is, is learning that is not reinforced and not really demonstrated until there's a true motivation or incentive, and in the case of the rats, the food, to do that. Um, embedded within latent learning here is that rats will form what Tolman will call a cognitive map of the maze, but did not actually demonstrate knowledge until they got that reinforcement. And when you think of cognitive map there, I'll break it down again just to repeat it and reinforce it, but it's this vision in their mind, cognition, again, this is cognitive factors to learning of where to go and where to navigate the maze. And once the rats actually got that reinforcement, they solved the maze, but they weren't before. So it also shows the, when we think about Tolman, the effects of delayed versus immediate gratification, you can still learn something and learn a particular behavior even if you don't experience that immediate gratification or that instant reinforcement. It also shows, again, this is a cognitive factor, um, cogni cognition on learning. It's not just, you know, we're responding to a stimulus. There's more complicated things involved that go on in our mind. Another type of cognitive factor on learning is known as premax principle. It's just named after the guy who came up with it. Uh, the more we get into psych, the more we'll realize particular principles and laws and theories are just named after the psychologists that founded them. And what Premax principle says is that <coughs> high prob probability behavior can serve as reinforcement for low probability behavior. You guys have experienced this growing up. Your parents have told you you don't watch TV until you do the dishes. Um, another good example is you don't get dessert until you eat your vegetables. When you think about that high probability behavior, of course you want, you know, the dessert. And that low uh, probability behavior is eating the vegetables. When they're paired together, you're more likely to do both because you want to get that dessert. Now, something to kind of side note here in Premax principle is the question of, are all rewards the same for all people? Um, think about it. Was there something that, you know, if you yourself got reinforcement, were you more likely to do that compared to your sibling? If so, that's the kind of big question of, are all rewards the same? Um, what is reinforcing to one animal may not be to another, or even in a situation, what is reinforcing in one situation may not be in another. Then we dove into, and what we will do in class, or if there's a snow day, you'll just experience this asynchronously, some questions that go into and feed into a big topic that does affect cognition on learning, and it's called locus of control. The big thing of locus of control, <coughs> especially if you have a high locus of control, is this sense of you have that power and desire uh, to behave in a particular way. This leads into different types of motivation. 
we're going to come back to locus of control in the future as well as intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. A lot of these topics um, overlap. Now what we found in class with the different locuses of control is that there um, is a positive correlation with that internal or high locus of control regarding a higher score of the informal quiz that we took. It's not graded. Uh, the mean for females is slightly higher than males for a stronger internal locus of control. Doesn't necessarily mean anything, it's just a correlation. Um, but like I said, you know, in, or locus of control feeds into two different types of motivations, intrinsic and extrinsic. Um, when we think of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, it's kind of the why and how are you motivated. So if you have a intrinsic mo or if you're intrinsically motivated to do something, you're doing something for the sake of actually doing it. Whether you're bettering yourself, where you whether you want to improve, whether you want to learn something, where for yourself. Whereas extrinsic motivation is you're motivated by some external factors, money not necessarily food all the time, um, good grades even, um, food, or I guess some type of foods, not all, um, but you need some type of secondary reinforcer there. Um, and keep in mind, there is a difference between rewarding someone for a job well done um, and bribing someone to actually do something. What ties into intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is this over-justification effect. And the big thing here is if you are rewarding a behavior that someone does already, that behavior actually usually decreases. And the reason why the cognition that's going on here is that subject is thinking to themselves, well, this behavior must not be worth doing if I have to be bribed to do it. I'm going to take a pause um, and then get into the last segment. All right, so the last type of learning is learning by observation. And in other words, it's learning by observing others. It is, can be a type of non-associative learning, but we do embed it under cognitive learning. Um, it's best put under there. And it is basically the direct experience is not necessarily needed for learning to happen. Um, what observational learning is generally associated with though is higher thinking um, animals, um, humans for sure, but not necessarily like bugs, butterflies, caterpillars, worms, not those. Um, it can be through, you know, dogs for sure, cats even, um, even uh, rats with, we're going to bring up Tolman again. Now, you may see a word vicarious thrown in with observational learning. It was um, part of one of the FRQs for the AP exam in uh, May this past year and pretty much just associate learning or observational learning and vicarious learning under the same bubble. Um, if you've heard of the phrase, you know, living vicariously 
through others. Let's say there's someone on a vacation that you wish you could go to. You may hear the phrase, oh, I'm living vicariously through you. Uh, think of that again as observational learning. Uh, we just watch or witness someone behaving in a, in a particular way and then we can imitate it. Now, a type <coughs> of observational learning is called modeling. Teachers do this all the time. It definitely happened when you were in elementary school, um, and it may continue to happen. We sometimes have done it, uh, especially with the stats part of this course. But what modeling is, is observing and learning a specific behavior. It can be conscious and also unconscious. Generally, when modeling is happening in the classroom with teaching a particular topic, it's conscious modeling. Some examples of unconscious um, modeling is actually like styles, fads, catchphrases even. Um, I can't even think of any off the top of my head because I'm tired, but I'm sure if you're listening to this, you can think of a ton of different styles, fads, and catchphrases that would be unconscious modeling. Um, a kind of conscious modeling example out, outside of the classroom would be, all right, I want to teach you to throw a football, so I throw it, now you do it. Uh, some teaching <coughs> methods that have been used for modeling would be like, I do it, the teacher, we do it as a class, now you do it on your own to show if you've actually learned something. If you're going to become a teacher, specifically elementary, I'm sure you will do this over and over again. Another type of observational learning, we talked about it earlier, but it's latent, but it also could be called incidental learning. In other words, it's learning that's not apparent. Think of Tolman and the mats navigating the, the maze. Um, it is learning that does happen without reinforcement and without any particular motivation. However, the learning only becomes apparent when there's an actual incentive to demonstrate it. Uh, a lot of times though this happens while we're driving <coughs> or when we learn to drive. Uh, we're not driving at five years old, but when we're in elementary school and middle school, we have observed um, you know, how to drive. And it also happens with foreign language. Um, you are experiencing a foreign language if you're exposed to it, the one point where you're asked to say something or write something or assessed in some way, you have learned, you know, that foreign language. Now, I did talk about it earlier, but I want to emphasize it again. A cognitive map is formed, you know, with latent learning. It's kind of like a type of latent learning, and it's just a mental representation of the layout of your environment. If you think back to when we were in school last year, you guys do have gen a general layout of Stonebridge. Or if you weren't at Stonebridge last year, you had a general layout of your other school. Um, you could envision cognitively where you were going from class to class. Now, with particular types <coughs> of observation, we do actually learn by observation more than we realize. We've learned particular morals through observation, interacting with others, um, kind of like social norms even. When we think of that nature-nurture debate regarding observational learning, we're definitely putting it under the nurture part, again, through an environment, through experience. Um, latent learning, modeling, all associated with observational learning. 
And through observational learning, we've learned to behave in particular ways. Now, two words that College Board does throw around every now and then is antisocial and prosocial behavior. What's happening here would be if you, an antisocial behavior, would be behavior that is just not so great. It's unhelpful, um, it's risky, it's not behavior that you would necessarily want someone behaving. Um, on the other hand, we have pro-social behavior, it's the opposite. It's beneficial behavior, helpful behavior, pleasant behavior. Uh, the more we're exposed to antisocial uh, versus pro-social behavior, we'll behave um, more likely in either or. Now, one issue with observational learning will be this phrase, do as I say, not as I do. This, in fact, especially, you know, if you all become parents, is quite difficult to enforce. Um, the issue here is, is that the observer actually learns to imitate the behavior, not the message. Um, they learn it's okay to say one thing and do another, uh, which could lead to lying, dishonesty, not too great, you know, those would be antisocial behaviors that you don't really want your children picking up on. Um, same thing as students. We as teachers should strive and, you know, want to act in ways that we want our students to act in. Um, which, yes, sometimes is tricky, you know, teachers are humans too, mistakes happen, but it's a tricky, I feel like it's a slippery slope to um, stand on, especially if you're, you know, you emphasize as a parent or a teacher, do as I say, not as I do. Now, one last thing before we dive into an experiment are mirror neurons. So this is biology here, but it's fascinating. Um, and these neurons are located in our frontal lobes, you know, the front of our brain, and they're neurons that fire when we perform a particular action, as well as when we observe that action. Um, doing and actually seeing, observing, looking at, that action causes the same reaction in the frontal lobe. And this actually enables humans to learn things faster through imitation or through, you know, looking at it, observing it, modeling even. Um, we believe, scientists, psychologists, believe neuroscientists, I guess would be the best scientist to put under here, believe that mirror neurons are very, very important in actually language learning as well as learning empathy. Um, if you think about it, it's kind of tricky and hard to frown when someone else is smiling. Now, if they're obnoxiously smiling, you probably would get annoyed, but if they're just in a good mood. Of course, if it's an obnoxious good mood, that's hard, but just a general, normal good mood. It is actually harder to frown uh, when someone else is smiling, and it's because those particular mirror neurons are firing in the frontal lobe. Um, if you also think about, you know, why do babies imitate adults? Um, if you stick your tongue out, um, the baby sees it, and then they will eventually do it. Um, through imitation. Again, this is a type of observational learning. Now, the last thing that I'm going to talk about <coughs> before we close out is the Bobo doll experiment. And with your warm-up or your asynchronous warm-up, depending on if we had a snow day, is does wa watching violence cause one to be violent. And there's an emphasis on the cause here. It was bolded and underlined. Um, it's a big question, and it really depends. 
um, you could take the the route and say no because you know this potentially is a, cor a correlational study and we know that correlation does not mean causation unless there's a true experiment formed but there are instances where you know violence can cause or watching violence can cause one to be violent and that is demonstrated in the Bobo doll experiment so this happens in 1961 Albert Bandura is the psychologist <coughs> who performs this experiment in Stanford um, and we'll talk about him again um, he is very, very important for the remainder of the, the year. We'll get to him in more detail. Uh, but he pretty much wants to study if children will actually imitate what they see on TV. And he was particularly interested in violent TV shows. He looked at the effect of both operant and observational learning. And when we think of the Bobo doll experiment, as well as just Albert Bandura as a whole, I want you to think of this social cognitive learning theory. Um, pretty much, you know, how we're socialized, how we experience and, you know, interact with humans, but also what's going in the on in the mind affect how we learn. So what Bandura will do is have um, <coughs> a group of children watch a video of a particular adult beating up a bobo doll. Now, my thought or my recommendation is if you're listening to this and you aren't looking at the presentation from day 28, you do that or you just Google what a bobo doll looks like um, because it's important to, in, to envision. It's like a blown up kind of scary clown looking thing that's weighted by sand on the bottom. There are three versions. So in one video, the adult is rewarded after beating up the bobo doll. Again, think operant conditioning here, okay? Another version is that adult is punished after beating up the doll. And then the last version is that the adult is neither punished nor rewarded. Now, in some of these experiments, Bandura will actually have a fourth version where the um, adult doesn't beat up the doll. But that's not super significant right now. So, after the children were exposed to watching that video, think observational learning of the children looking, watching that video, the children were allowed to play with the Bobo doll. Now, three key conclusions happened, or I guess results. The children who watched the video when the adult was rewarded, um, they actually also beat up the doll. And in the other toys in the room, they played with violently. The <laughs> group two, the children who watched the video when the adult was punished, those children did not play violently with the, the Bobo doll or the other toys. And then in the third group, the children who watched the video when the adult is neither punished or rewarded, they also beat up the doll and played violently, but not as violently as the first group, which does, you know, a, it kind of shows the big conclusion here of observational learning has an effect on behavior. Um, if we observe other humans behaving in a particular way, we may also behave in that way. That brings us into the mass media and observational learning. It's a big topic that College Board tends to come back to 
um, every few years in FRQs, but there also most likely will be a multiple choice question asking about it of, you know, how much does TV, movies, video games, music, etc. influence our behavior? It does appear to be a strong correlation between violent TV shows, movies, video games, and actual acts of violence. Why? A lot of times the why part, it, it's tricky to pinpoint, but a lot when we think about it, it's that desensitization towards the violent behavior, also potential you know, acceptance of violent behavior. However, when we see that correlation, the big question we have to ask ourselves is, does correlation mean uh, causation? And the answer is no. Now, if we go back to that warm-up question of, you know, does watching violent video games or playing, watching violence, sorry, cause one to be violent? If you set up an experiment and prove that, then sure. But that experiment has to be controlled. You have to have, you know, appropriate variables. You have to um, make sure that you don't have those confounding variables, and then you can say that. But it's tricky to do that. And the big question that I would ask you is, is that actually ethical? And most likely not. Um, and that's pretty much it. So this wraps up learning. Lots of vocab. My <coughs> recommendation for you before you start the quiz is regardless of if we have school or not, um, I'll hold, you know, I hold office hours every Monday from one to two. Some of you come, some of you don't. I recommend that you do if you have questions, especially if you're a B-Day. Um, if you, before you take the quiz, there will be a formative check um, located in Schoology in the exit ticket folder for Unit 4. I recommend starting there. Um, from there, you can see your general weak areas and your general strong areas. That can kind of lead into particular uh, methods or focuses of your studying. And then lastly, if you go into Schoology and go into the Unit 4 folder, you will just see a Google Doc there that says Unit 4 Essential Knowledge. Check that. If you can walk through it <coughs> and talk through it, maybe even make a Quizlet using that Essential Knowledge document. Um, once you have that, you're good to go for the quiz. Um, and that pretty much is it. All right. Thanks for listening.